Charming little bugs, aren't they? Wanted to show you that clip this morning. Uh, we began a three-week mini-series last Sunday in the book of Joel. So if you were here last week and you were here for that and you came back this week, then that's your fault. It's on you, okay? So I just want you to know that. Go ahead and find your place this morning, if you will, in Joel chapter number 2. Joel chapter number 2 is where we'll be. The series is entitled Plagues and Purpose. We'll get to Joel chapter number 2 here in just a moment. Last Sunday, we were introduced to a man whose name means the Lord is God. We have never in our society needed a message like we do today that says the Lord is God. This is what Joel delivers in his message. This is what he delivered to the people of Judah in roughly 800 B.C. after the locust plague that had ravished everything. We gave two points last week. They should be in your handout already this morning. We looked at ruin and we looked at rebuke. A couple of key principles that I want to highlight as we get started this morning. First of all, uh, we'll revisit this again today. God may allow a plague to come into your life. He may allow it. He may even arrange it. He may be the orchestrator behind what it is that you're going through. He may allow it and he may arrange it, but it's not his design to ever waste it. He doesn't want it to be wasted. It's never his design to waste anything, even with trials that come our way. With God, there is always purpose in the plague. The past, present, and future of the nation of Judah have been destroyed by the plague. If you looked at chapter 1, verse number 17, there were three different things that were all gone. Uh, all their crop from the past that they had reserved, all the present stuff that they were going to eat today and this week, and all the seeds for the future had all been destroyed by the plague of locusts. Past, present, and future of the nation of Judah had been destroyed. Another principle we hit on last week, trusting God means that we are believing His purpose is greater than our loss. I don't understand that today. If we were to have a come to Jesus moment right now and you were to tell me what it is you're struggling with in your life and what you're going through and the plague that you're encountering, I can probably not make sense of it. Your neighbor probably couldn't make sense of it. Maybe some of them we could, but most of them we can't because trusting God means we are believing that His purpose is greater than our loss and it may not make sense to us today, but we believe in God and that someday it will. Someday we believe it will make sense. The final point from last week I want to highlight before we jump into chapter 2 is you cannot control the locust plagues that you will face in your life. You can't control the locust plagues. You certainly cannot change the plagues, but in the plague... God can change you. This is what we do. I had several people come up to me since last week and said, that's where I'm at in my life right now. I'm asking God to change this, change this situation, change these circumstances, change this relationship, change this medical diagnosis. I'm asking God to change my situation, but rather I need to be asking God that in the situation, can he change me? Because that's what he seeks to do. So if you found your place in Joel chapter number two, go ahead and stand with me as we read this morning. We're going to work our way through verse number 17, but for the sake of standing here at the beginning, I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not seen ever the like, 
neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, they shall leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All the faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march every one on his ways. They shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. When they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. The stars shall withdraw their shining. Verse 11, And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. For His camp is very great, for He is strong that executed His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Today's installment of this series is entitled, One Step Away. One Step Away. We'll continue with our outline today with point number three, if you're taking notes. Point number three is the word repent. Repent. As a nation, Judah had strayed away from God's plan. As with any people in any dispensation, God pursues His people when we go astray. You think about in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. Then God created man, and things began to be not so perfect. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, what happens? Adam and Eve sinned, and what does God do? He comes looking for Adam and Eve. They've never hid before, but they're hiding now. And what does God do? He says, where art thou? Hey, where are you guys at? This is, this is the time that I come every day. It would be like coming home from work every day and my kids are just hiding. They're nowhere to be found. Like, hey, I, I come home at the same time every day. Where are you guys? This is how God comes down to the garden and he comes down to be with Adam and Eve and he's like, where, where are you guys? He, he pursues them. We read through uh, the Exodus account when Moses is on Mount Sinai and Aaron's down below with the people and he's getting the commandments from God and Aaron is making a golden calf. And God says to Moses, hey, you, you better get back down there. Sounds like war in the camp. I don't know what these people are doing. And God pursues after them again. You read through the book of Judges. It's a, an interesting book. Read through there. And you, you see the same pattern over and over again of God pursuing His people. They do evil. And then an enemy comes and wipes them out or puts them in captivity or bondage. And then what do they do? They cry out to God. God raises up a judge. And they eventually repent. And then after a period of repentance and some time goes by, what do they do? They do evil again. You see that cycle over and over again of God pursuing His people during the times of the Israel's kings. Uh, he would put down one. He would raise up another. They would inevitably fall into idolatry or, or some kind of pagan worship. And God would put down one king and He would raise up another. And this is what God did because He always pursued His people. For those of us today living in the dispensation of grace, the New Testament age, since the book of Acts, what does God do? He still pursues us. 
He pursues us individually and personally by His Holy Spirit. That's why you can come to a service like this and hear the same text being read and the same message and get something totally different out of it than the person sitting next to you. Do you know why that can be? It's because the Holy Spirit works on you personally and individually, and He still pursues us even today. In every dispensation, God has always pursued His people. And He does so here in Joel chapter 2. He's, he's pursuing them again. God pursues His children and still does today. In verses 1-11 through 11 that we just read, there are three keys to understanding this portion of repentance that Joel is preaching. Letter A, if you're taking notes, we see a charge. A charge. Verse number 1. Joel is very clear as he says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Joel challenges the people of Judah with a charge to blow the trumpet. Sound the alarm. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on here at this church in order for a Sunday to happen. There's more than you know, and I've learned this week, there's even, there's even more than I know of what goes on to make Sundays possible around here. I'll give you a couple examples. You, you probably have an opinion, like everyone does, about the music. Doesn't matter which service you go to. You may find this hard to believe, but did you know that Scott plans the music before today? He does. Those of you in the choir know that, but he plans the music weeks in advance of what each service is going to look like. Faith sang the song this morning. Faith knew weeks in advance. She didn't just wake up today and say, Danny, I think I've got the special today. What, what do you think I should sing? She's, she's practiced weeks in advance. Those of you that sing, those of you that participate in the music, there's a lot that goes into the music part of this service. There's a lot that goes on with our tech I was in here, not yesterday, but last Saturday. I, I just walked through here about 4.30, 5 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. No one's supposed to be in here. You know who was in here? Steve Flanyak was in here. He was working on stuff for the next day, for Sunday. I didn't know anybody was here at 4.30 on a Saturday afternoon, but Steve was here. Steve's actually gone today. Our entire tech team today is run by teenagers, and they've done a phenomenal job. But there's a lot of work that goes on in our tech team, with our music, with stuff that goes on around here. I'll mention a couple of other ministries. We have greeters, security, nursery, childcare, live announcements in the next service, videos, this video that we showed from Jody and our women in Guatemala. This is the first missions trip since I've been here that we have done as a part of our church that I have not gone on. And I am so pumped that they're getting to do this. We sent nine ladies to Guatemala, and they're doing a phenomenal job. She texted me this morning. This is another update. This is more stuff that we're doing. Here's what we've got later in the week. I hope to do more trips just like that. There's a lot of things that go on around here. You may think that the sermon is just as simple as Pastor Rob or me locking ourselves in our office for a few hours and then pumping out a sermon. But it's not that easy around here because there's a lot of steps. I have to get an outline. I got people asking me midway through the week, hey, what's your outline for Sunday? I don't know. I'm still working on it. I'll, I'll get it to you. Well, I need an outline. Somebody else, I need a handout. We, we print out the handouts. I got to have the outline. I got to have the handout. Somebody else, hey, I, I got to have the PowerPoint. We're going to put words on the screen, and we want to know what to put up there. What do you want to put? I'm thinking it's Monday. It's Tuesday. I, I still got some time. Uh, there's sermon notes. I have to actually send my sermon notes to the deaf interpreters for the next service so that they have an idea of where I'm going. And I'm told that I talk really fast and it's really difficult for them to transcribe what I say uh, to those that they're communicating to. 
Uh, there's also, I got to get the title out for the marquee on the sign. So I told him last week, hey, I'm going to do one series, three weeks, just leave it on there for all three weeks. I'm not going to get you a title every week. You know what Pastor Rob does is he writes a sermon preview email. You didn't get one this week. You know why? Because I didn't write one this week. There's a lot that goes into it. There's SRQs that we have to write for our connect groups when they're in season. There's a lot that goes into the service. You think about aesthetics. There's, there's stuff about this, this room that's a little bit different. I, I got a little close to the edge earlier, and it's, it's a little bit higher up. I thought about jumping down today. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take the stairs. I, I feel very removed from you guys. Usually people don't like to sit in these first few rows, but some of you in the back could have moved up today because I'm so much further removed from where I normally would be. We've got all these aesthetics that take place at our church that you probably wouldn't even recognize. Uh, we've got a stand here for the deaf interpreters in the next service. Uh, we've got a new logo right here. I don't know if you've noticed that we've changed the logo plate right here on the pulpit because this, this is a brand new logo. We've got a, a new floor that we've got here. It's not been sealed yet, but it, it looks like it's going to be really nice. I'm excited about it. Make sure you don't spill anything on it today, okay? It hasn't been sealed yet. Please don't spill anything today. We've got, um, we've got tissue boxes here that we have up at the front. These are kneelers that we have. Uh, some of you are unfamiliar with this, but if you were to ever decide in a service to come to the altar and pray about something, we've prepared accommodations for this. We have kneelers up here. Not to mention, we also have these pads. Check this out. A lot of churches don't do this, but we actually have pads where if you want to come and kneel at the altar, you don't have to get your clothes dirty, which it probably would today. I feel like I'm Billy Sunday on the sawdust trail a little bit, but you won't have to get dirty. You don't have to get your knees messed up. We have all of these things that we have, we have aesthetically prepared for people to come to. Day. You ever notice this thing, this little megaphone that we have here? You ever notice this? Usually we have plants up here, and when I preach, I'll usually come out right before the service and I'll hide this behind the plants because aesthetically, I don't like the way that it looks. I think it looks a little, little crazy. Anybody ever saw this and wondered, why do we have this up here? I've wondered it before. And the reason is, is because if we lose power or there's some kind of emergency and we need to communicate something to you, and my mic goes out. This is what Joel does is he sounds the alarm. And I hope our security guys in the other room aren't freaking out with what's going on in here right now. I hope that's not the case. They haven't run in yet. But this is what Joel is doing, is he's sounding an alarm, and he's letting people know, hey, you, you guys got to wake up to what's going on. Look again at verse number one. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Why? Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand. Look at verse number two. He says, a day of darkness, of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There has never been people like this before, nor of the like. There will be after it for the years and many generations. This has never happened before. It'll never happen again. We got to sound an alarm. We got to wake up. Hey, I'm going to tell you what, right now, I'm not going to get into specifics or details. We have to wake up in 2023 America to what's going on in our culture. We, we got to wake up to what's going on. Uh, they're not out so much to get you and to get me as much as they're out to get your kids. They're out to get your grandkids. 
I don't know how old your kids are, how old your grandkids are, but they're out to get them today. My, my son is, a, is an avid reader. He loves to read everything he gets his hands on, and he's, he's 10 years old. When I was 10 years old and there was required reading of 12 pages, you know how many pages I read? 12. I never read 13. What if it ended in the middle of a chapter and it was really interesting? Don't care. Wasn't required reading. I'm not going to do it. Now, I like to read today, but when I was 10, I, I wasn't that way. I didn't walk into someone's house and pick up a book and start reading. My son does that. I'm concerned a little bit. He's 10 years old. He loves everything that he reads. He loves to get his hand on a good book and read it. And he, he started reading this series um, last year, and it was a series about dragons. And, and these, are, these are thick books. And he started reading Wings of Fire. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a very popular series called Wings of Fire. So I looked into it, and he, he started reading the book, and he read book one. He got to the end of book one. He said, hey, Dad, can we go ahead and order book two? I'm almost done with book one. I said, yeah, I'll get it on Amazon. So it was there in like 10 minutes or something, you know? I said, yeah, we can get you book two. And we read book two, and then he got to book three and four. And he had read nine books. He was coming to the end of book number nine, and he says, hey, Dad, I'm almost done with book nine. Can we get book 10? I said, yeah, I'll order book 10. Very next day, he says to me, hey, Dad, can I, can I talk to you about something? I said, yeah, man, absolutely. What's up? He said, you know how I asked if we could order book 10? I said, yeah, yeah, we ordered book 10. He said, hey, there's something I want to talk to you about book nine. I'm getting ready to finish book nine, and you know, I, I love this series, and it, it's action, it's adventure, and it's, it's about these dragons and wings of fire, man, it, it's awesome. But there's something weird that happened at the end of book nine. I said, what happened at the end of book nine? He said, well, there's this female dragon who's attracted to another female dragon. And I said, really? He said, yeah, and there's, there's also a, a male dragon who, who has a crush on another male dragon. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, huh. I'm thinking, what, what do we do, parents? I thought, okay, I could, I could deny it. Maybe he's exaggerating, okay? You know, it's probably not a big deal. We could deny it, or we could ignore it and say, you know, son, dragons aren't even real, okay? This is fiction. It's just a fictional book. It's just for fun. Dragons aren't real. Or we can explain it. And I said, well, buddy, what, what does God say about men and women and male and female. And he said, well, uh, you know, back in Genesis, we were created in the image of God. And the men were supposed to be with the women, and the women were supposed to be with the men. I said, yeah, that's what God said. I said, what did Jesus say about traditional marriage? He said, I don't know, Dad. What did he say? I said, Jesus actually affirmed what God said back in Genesis. Jesus affirmed that, that marriage is between a man and a woman, and for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife, and they too will be one flesh. So God said it in the beginning, and then Jesus affirmed it in the New Testament. So I don't know what to think about this. And what I did is I tried to be a little objective and said, you know what, I'm going to let you decide what you do with this. We've already ordered book 10. If you want to read book 10 and tread lightly there, I'll let you do it. Or you can choose another series. I'll return book 10 and get you something else. And he said, Dad, I don't have to think about it. Uh, let's go ahead and return book 10. You think we could get our money back for books 7, 8, and 9? I said, oh, it's worth a shot. Amazon you know, likes to take our returns. It's fine. Let's do it. We got another book. I I'm telling you that simple illustration because they're not out to get me, okay? They're out to get your kids. 
They're out to get your grandkids, and they don't do it in book one, chapter one. They wait till nine books in to hook them. Once they're hooked and once they love the series, that's when they try and create their agenda. This is our time to stand up for what's right. We, we got to wake up, and Joel is imploring the people in his day, wake up to the culture, wake up to what's going on all around you. This is our time to stand up for what's right in our generation. It's not going to be popular. It's not going to be politically correct, but it has to be what's right. And Joel gives his people a charge. He sounds the alarm. Wake up to what's happening in your day. Let her be. We see a charge. Now we see a change. A change. The plague wasn't over. In fact, if you look, the, the plague was just the beginning. The locusts were just the start of the coming judgment. Look at verse number three. He says, a, fi a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. It's fire, and there's like a trailing flame, which means the fire's not all there is to it. There's also a flame behind it. The destruction is bigger than what you can see. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them. That's what you used to have. You used to have something like Eden. And behind them, behind the locusts, after they've come through, behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and of horsemen. So shall they run. It's fast. It's fiery. Nothing is going to escape them. What Joel wanted them to know is he wasn't necessarily trying to scare them, but he wanted them to understand there is no escaping this plague. Don't think that you can run from this. You won't outrun them. Don't think that you can hide from this. Don't think that you can escape the destruction that is coming. This is what Joel is saying. The day of the Lord, his final judgment on sin, there will be no escaping that either. To the believer, those who have a relationship with Jesus, we're not judged according to our sin. Rather, when we stand before God and God looks at our life before he can see us and our sin and our works and what we've done, he sees the blood of Jesus. And so he, he allows us to be reconciled, to be restored, to be redeemed. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the blood of Christ. But for those who are without Christ, who have not accepted Jesus, what does he look at? He, he looks at the sin. He sees the good works, he sees the bad, and there's no amount of good that can ever outweigh the bad. So that is why the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, is so important. To the believer, it ought to make us take caution, it ought to make us, make us witness and, and share our faith with those who do not know him. The word of God is speaking in Joel's day in a national sense, but today in this dispensation of grace, he's speaking to us in a spiritual sense, and he's wanting us to know, are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared for the end times? Are you prepared for the day of the Lord? Are you prepared when things continue to get worse and worse? Joel is saying the day of the Lord is coming. What needs to change for you? I want you to look at verses 5 through 10. And as I read this, I want you to understand some of the symbolism of what he's trying to say. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, they shall leap. He's saying there, there's, no, there's no mountain. There's no mountain range that's going to be able to stop them. They're going to be able to get over everything, even the mountains. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, leaving nothing left, as a strong people set in battle array. These locusts, these are like warriors. They're not coming on a friendly, on a friendly visit, okay? They're coming to ravage everything that you have. Verse 6, before their face, the people, 
shall be much pained. All the faces shall gather blackness. It has the idea of paleness. Uh, It's the symbolism of death. Verse 7, they shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march everyone in his ways. They shall not break their ranks. They're, they're, they're sequenced. They're, they're together. They are in perfect pattern with one another. They're, they're not jostling each other. They're not bumping into each other. They have a plan of attack, and they are following the game plan. They're not going to get deterred in any way from their ranks. This is what Joel is saying. Verse number 6, They shall not break the ranks. Verse 8, neither shall one thrust another. They're not bumping into each other. They shall walk everyone on his path. They shall fall upon the sword. They shall not be wounded. There's nothing you can do to destroy these guys. There's nothing you can do to stop them. There's nothing you can do to stop the ultimate day of the Lord that's coming. Verse 9, they shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. There's nowhere you can go that will escape what's coming. This is the symbolism that God wants us to have. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and moon shall be dark and the stars will withdraw their shining. Here, what Joel does in these verses is he weaves the horrors of the locust plague with the dark anticipation of the future day of the Lord. I won't take time to break down uh, the Revelation passage that aligns with this, but the symbolism is scary. He's wanting them to know there's nothing you can do to escape it. This is coming. This is going to happen. So we're left to repent. We're left to make things right between us and God. Joel is explaining a change is coming. Your only hope is in the Lord. Your only hope is in the Lord. Joel presents a charge and a change. Now let her see. We see a choice. A choice. Look at verse number 11. The Lord shall utter His voice before His army, for His camp is very great. For He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is very great and very terrible. Who can abide it? Who can endure it? Who can stand? This portion, as we began with earlier, it ends with a rhetorical question. Who can abide it? Who can endure what's coming? The Lord has spoken. He's going to execute His powerful word. The day of the Lord is very great and very terrible. The Hebrew word is Yahweh. It's used over 300 times in the Hebrew text, and it literally means to be fearful, to be afraid, or to be terrified. If we were to hear a national leader today in 2023 get up and prophesy that this was coming, and he had good evidence for it, it would terrify us. If you saw this on the 5 o'clock news today, it would be terrifying. So he asks, who can endure it? He's saying, you can't withstand what's coming on your own. You're not going to bypass it. You're not going to get past it. This is coming to your day. So what are we going to do? Repentance is our only choice to make. He's speaking to a people that were living in sin, that were experiencing sin. He's not specific on what specific sin it was that their people uh, was involved in. But he says repentance is always our choice to make. Genuine love is choosing to love someone in spite of their choices. I don't love all the choices my kids make. And they're 8 and 10 and 3. You probably don't like all the choices your kids have made. Your grandkids have made. Your family has made. This is, what, this is the love that God has for us. Genuine love is choosing to love someone in spite of their choices. God loves us in spite of the fact that sometimes we choose things that are not best for us. We do this. 
even in our redeemed, regenerated spirits, there are times we still choose to serve sin in our minds. So what Joel does is he explains what has come and what is still coming. Now he presents a word from the Lord in verse number 12. Look at what he says. Therefore, also now, says the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. Point number three is repent. Point number four is return. Return. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, also now, says the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Hey, I got to tell you, this is so God, okay? You, you cannot help but see God and Jesus in those two verses. Because it's all been doom and gloom. It's all been locust. It's all been destruction. It's all been Judah has gone out. They've done their own thing. They've, done their own, they've gone their own way. They don't want anything to do with me. Oh, but if they will repent and return... I will accept them. This is so God, what he does. We run and we fight and we fall and we fail and we rebel and we do our own thing. And yet, he is still merciful and compassionate toward us. It's amazing. When you fail and you fight me and you fall and you don't want anything to do with me, it's easy for me to be like, okay, I'm done with you. Fine. Go, do your own thing. I don't care. But God is not like that. God's not like me. God's not like you. He is still merciful and compassionate even when we fail, even when we go and do our own thing. It's amazing. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my wife was talking about going to Colorado. She was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. And she said, you know, it's been about a year since I've been to Colorado, and I was hoping I could get there this summer. And I said, oh, okay. Well, um, I tell you what. Let's look at the calendar and see when you could go. I never like to send her for like five or six days, and I don't want her to be gone two full weeks. So usually there's a sweet spot in there. I want her to be gone long enough um, to miss me, but not too long to where she just thinks she moved there, okay? So what I did was we, we found her some tickets, and I said, you know, I found some tickets. I think, I think I can send you guys for about a week and a half or so, but... Um, I just don't know that it's going to work with my schedule to be gone for that long. And she kindly said, I didn't say anything about you coming. <laughs> That's true, so she didn't. So we got Desiree and the three kids got on a flight uh, on Tuesday last week to go to Colorado. They were there this week, and they're coming back uh, in a few more days. And so anyway, they were, they were there. And uh, while they were there, my mom said, you know, me and your dad are going to go to the beach for a couple days. You want to tag along? And I thought, yeah, I got nothing else to do and nowhere else to eat. So yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. So I went with them to the beach for a couple days. I, I love going to the beach. I know some of you go to the beach or you've already gone this year. You're getting ready to go. And some of you have a place there. And I love going to the beach. I like North, North Myrtle. It's a little quieter than the, all the stuff going on down south. But I, I like going. It's about three-hour drive. And so uh, usually when I drive to the beach, uh, we take the van and we've got all the stuff and we're loaded down and we got to take all these potty breaks. And it was great because for me, 
I just, I, I got in. I just, I threw my stuff in the Jeep and I left and I went. And it's a, about a three-hour drive. And so I was, I was driving to the beach and I was just thinking, you know, about, you know, the anticipation of going and getting away and relaxing for a couple of days. And I thought, what will the weather be like? Did I pack the right stuff? Uh, is it going to be nice while I'm there? Will I make good time? Where am I going to eat when I'm there? Will I sleep well while I'm there? Can I get any work done? And uh, what's interesting is research, psychological research has suggested that the anticipation of a trip is often just as exciting and in some cases more exciting than the actual trip. I don't know if you've ever found that to be true, but the anticipation of going on a trip sometimes is even better than the actual trip. Uh, when you're traveling to a destination, it, like it is for me, it seems like it takes forever for me to get there. So a three-hour drive to the beach always seems like it takes about five hours to get there. It never takes that long, but it seems like it takes forever to get there. And I came back last night, and a three-hour drive felt like an hour and a half because it's always like that. When you come home from something, it, it happens a lot faster. The, the trip is the same. It's not a shorter trip. It just seems like a shorter trip. And the principle I want you to understand in that is this. It doesn't matter how far away you've traveled from God. The road home always is shorter. It's always shorter. I know of people that have wandered from God for years, decades even. And you know how far away they are from God? One choice. One decision. One step away. It doesn't matter how far you've driven. You could get on the wrong road. If I were to get on the road and start traveling north, it would take me a long time to get to Myrtle Beach. I'm just going to tell you. It would take a long time for me to get there. I can go the wrong way in my life for years, decades even. And you know how far away I am from God? One choice, one step. And you know what he does when I come back? You know what he does when we decide to repent and return? He welcomes us with open arms. I don't understand that because I'm not built that way. God is. He's ever compassionate and merciful. And he's, he, he wants us to come home. He wants us to come back. You may have been far from God for years, but he welcomes you with open arms. You ever miss an exit on the highway? I hate when that happens. Sometimes you miss an exit and it costs you a mile or a couple of minutes. I've missed exits before that have cost me a half hour. You ever been there? It's the worst. Those highway interchanges, you miss it, you miss it. We'll see you in a half hour back on track. It's terrible, but God's not like that. Oh, you missed this exit? That's okay, I'll get you at the next one. Hey, God, I, I'm just too busy today. I'm going to bypass you on this exit too. That's okay. I'll get you on the next one. Because with God, we are always one step away. The road to God is always one step away. And the same is true for those that are in this room, just like those that are not here today. People that you know, that you love, who are far from God, they're only one step away from being back. According to God's roadmap, you can spend years traveling in the wrong direction, and you're still only one exit from returning home. Verse 12, he says, therefore also now. Joel never mentions a specific sin for the nation of Judah. But you know what? I can name some of mine. He doesn't name a specific sin, but you can name some of yours. You know the things you struggle with. You know the things that you fight more than other things. I, I can't name theirs, but I can name mine. There's urgency in this passage. He's saying now is the time. He's calling his people to returning into a relationship with him. Because on our own, we can't handle the locusts we're facing. We are no match for the coming judgment, but God extends mercy. Let's break it down. Letter A, he says the plea of return. The plea of return. He says, turn to me with all your heart. 
There's going to be fasting. There's going to be weeping. There's going to be mourning. And I want you to return. Repent and then return to me with all your heart. This is not some run-of-the-mill, oops, sorry. It's summertime. We, we send our kids outside on a regular basis. Like, hey, go outside. Go, it's nice. The sun is up longer. Go outside and play. You know what happens when we send all of our kids outside to play? They meet up with the neighborhood kids. We got all sorts of kids in our backyard. You know what always ends up happening at my house? I don't know if it happens at your house with your kids or grandkids. You know what happens? One kid will run inside crying because of something another kid did, usually their brother or sister. Usually it's my kid. My kid is crying. My kid did something wrong. Without fail, it's not very long before one kid runs inside crying to tell the other that that kid runs inside to defend themselves, to say, here's what actually happened. And so that what we have to do is we have to, we have to mediate as parents. They come and plead their case before the judge and jury. And uh, once we get to the bottom of it, here's what always has happened. One kid instigates, the other kid irritates, then they both retaliate, and it's my job to mediate. That's parenting in a nutshell, okay? Instigator, an irritator, uh, retaliator, and I get to be mediator. That's what happens at our house. So we make them apologize. My son is the worst at apologies, but he'll say, sorry. You ever had anyone apologize to you like this? Sorry. Can you be more specific? Yeah, sure. Sorry, Zoe. That's it. That's what he gets. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to try it again. And he, he works on it until he gets the apology correct. And usually he will become more remorseful in the process. It ends up being, I'm sorry, Zoe, for what I said. It was rude. And it was inconsiderate. And you did not appreciate my tone. And I am sorry for my actions. And then sometimes, just for fun, I make them hug. I hate when my parents did that to me, but I do it to my kids, and you probably do it to yours. I make them hug because they don't want to. And one of them hugs, and the other's just standing there like, oh, I don't want this. The nation of Judah was getting serious about their repentance and return. It wasn't just, hey, God, I messed up. Sorry. It was repentance and return. Um, this, this, this little three points is not in the outline. It's, it's bonus points, though, if you want to write these down. Their plea was immediate. It was immediate. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore also now. This is not something I'm putting off. Hey, God, I'm going to get back to my relationship with you. I'm going to get back to going to church. I'm going to get back to, to, to giving. I'm going to get back to studying your word. I'm going to get back to all those things. Give me like two or three weeks. This is really a busy time here in the summer. Just, just give me a little bit of time. No, it was immediate. There was fasting, weeping, and mourning. Fasting was the denying of self. Weeping was denying any pride. And mourning was denying public perception. All I care about in this moment is for things between me and God to be right. I don't care about it. I don't care about food. I don't care about who sees me or what they think. I just care about things being right. It was immediate. Next, it was internal. It happened on the inside. Verse 13, he says, stop rending your clothes. That's what they would do is when they would repent, they would rend their robes. They would rip their clothes and they would repent in sackcloth and ashes, and they would. this was a sign of mourning. And he says, stop ripping your clothes. Stop rending your garments. I want to see a rent heart. I, I want to see change on the inside, because if it's legitimate on the inside, it will manifest itself on the outside. He, he says, stop, stop ripping your clothes. Stop rending your garments. I want to see real internal change. It was immediate. It was internal. Here's a third one. It was inclusive. 
This is my favorite one. It was inclusive. He says, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relents over disaster. Man, that is good. That is so God. That is what he does, and it's who he is. When you return home to God after a time of being away, you know what he's booked? The all-inclusive package. You ever been on an all-inclusive? Here's a hint. Everything's included. Everything. You don't have to worry about what to order to eat. It's included. You want more? It's included. When you return home to God in a relationship with him, you have booked the all-inclusive package. It includes everything. Look what it includes here. It includes graciousness. He's merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relents over disaster. He's gracious. That means you get what you don't deserve. He's merciful. That means you no longer are punished for what you did wrong. You know people that continue to punish you over stuff you did wrong years ago? God doesn't operate that way. He's merciful. He abounds in steadfast love. That means his love for you is unconditional. There's nothing you could do that would make God love you any more. There's nothing you could do that would make God love you any less. His love is unconditional. Jeremiah 31, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He relents over evil and disaster. That means he's sorry for what you've been through and that you had to go through to get here. He's sorry. He hates that you had to go through that to get to this point in your life and this trial and this sickness and this sadness. He may have allowed it. He may have arranged it, but he's glad to see you're not wasting it in case you're a New Testament person and you feel stuck in this Old Testament passage. Verses 12 and 13 are essentially the gospel. They're essentially the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is gracious. He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's merciful in John 8 with the woman that was taken in adultery, and everybody picked up stones. And he said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. He abounds in steadfast love. When he saw the multitudes, Jesus was moved with compassion on them. He relents over evil. Old Jerusalem, you slayed the prophets. How soon would I have gathered you to myself? The path of returning home to God was paved by Jesus with grace and mercy and love and empathy. This is his plea of return. Letter B, the process of return. Verses 15 and 16, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Let the, uh, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth into his chamber and the bride out of her closet. We're not going to blow the trumpet again, but the last time the trumpet blew, the last time the alarm sounded was to announce doom. This time it's to announce the plea of return, the process of return. Gather a people, let's fast. The elders, children, infants, bride and groom, all of them were mentioned in verse 16. He called the elders because these were the leaders. These were the older generation. These were many who were responsible for the rebellion in the first place. So he calls the elders. He calls the children. He wants the kids to see mom and dad seeking God and to understand the importance of returning to him. He calls the nursing infants. This is the idea of future generations being blessed because of a national return to the Lord. They weren't going to do anything in the return. They hadn't rebelled against God, but they're there to represent the future generations that were coming. I love this part, the bride and the groom. These two are about to be married. I did a deep dive into this that we don't have time for, but the groom was in the bedroom. The Hebrew word is heder. So when you see the bride and groom, he's in the bedroom, heder. The bride was in her chamber or wedding canopy. It's called hupa. 
They were in two different rooms because they were looking forward to two separate things about the marriage. She was at the wedding canopy looking forward to the ceremony. He was in the bedroom looking forward to that part of marriage. And what God does is he calls them both and says, hey, this is more important than that. This is more important than your ceremony. This is more important than the consummating of your marriage. Come together because we need to seek God now. This was the process of return. Let her see under this point and I'm done. The plea, the process, let her see is the prayer of return. This is where I want to end. Verse 17. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine inheritance to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? We can make prayer so much more complex than it has to be. Their prayer had two components. Spare us and save them. That was it. We want you to spare us so that you'll be able to save them. God, would you exercise your mercy in response to our repentance so that we can return to a relationship and fellowship with you? It was spare us, but it was also save them. You see, the redemptive plan of God was to use a people that he had set apart for his divine purposes and that through them he would save others. That was God's design with the nation of Israel. That was God's design with the nation of Judah who wasn't following through on their deal. And really, that's God's design for us as the church, that he would have a people who were saved and set apart for the purpose and through us he would reach the nations and everybody else. So what they're saying in the prayer is, God, we recognize your design of setting us apart. Would you spare us so that through us you can save them, the heathen? So that they're not saying, hey, where is their God? Whatever happened to them and their God? One final consideration. There's a plea, there's a process, there's a prayer. It was to take place at a solemn assembly. Look at where this was. Look at verse 17. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Where? Between the porch and the altar. It's an interesting location between the porch and the altar. I didn't know what that meant, but I was in Israel back in January, and I texted um, one of the guides that we were in Jerusalem with. His name was Roman, and I hope to have him again when we go in November. But I said, hey, Roman, quick, quick question for you. And I asked about this verse and what it meant. And the way he broke it down was, is there a picture that we can put up there of the Solomon's Temple? There's a picture of Solomon's Temple that I want you to see. And I know the text is really small. But right here um, on the, uh, let's see, on the eastern gate where it says my name. And right above that is an eastern gate, an eastern porch. Right there, there it is, uh, the Golden Gate, yes. Right above that, on the top of that would have been called Solomon's Porch. And this is a gathering area. This is like a fellowship hall of where people would gather before they worship. And then right in the middle, you see court of Israel at the top, and then you see altar. The word altar literally means the place of slaughter. This is where they brought the animals for sacrifice, and they would kill them there and offer their sacrifice to God. And so he says, I want, you to take, I want this to take place between the porch and the altar. So the porch... In another translation, it's called the vestibule, is literally the welcome center. That's literally what it means, a time where people come together and gather before they worship. It's right out there, and it's in Sunday school classes, and it's right out here. This is the porch. And then where's the altar? Well, this one's easy. 
It's right here. This is it. This is where things come to die. This is where burdens come to be dropped off right here, and we don't carry them with us when we leave. So he says, I want this plea and this prayer of repentance and return to happen between the porch and the altar. So for our service today, what exists for us between the porch and the altar? It's us. I would jump down and join you, but I'm not going to do that. It's us. This is what takes place. This is what stands between those who need to be spared and those who need to be saved. This is what stands between. It's between the porch and the altar. It's literally us as we sit here worshiping today. You've been spared, but it's for a purpose. And again, we see purpose in the plague. It's our worship. It's our prayers. It's our opportunity to repent and return to the God who seeks to bring purpose out of our plagues. Let's pray this morning. I want to conclude this service with an invitation, and again, I have two people in mind as we open the invitation up in just a moment. Last week, we extended the invitation to two people, those experiencing the plague of sin and then those experiencing the plague of suffering. But today, I have two people in mind as well. Person number one is someone here today that needs to return to the Lord. Maybe you're here in our service. Maybe you're watching online. You need to return to the Lord. You know that things between you and God have been better, and they're not now where they should be. You've wandered from his plan for your life. Can I just tell you you're only one step away? You're one step away. Maybe you've not yet accepted the forgiveness that Jesus offers. You've tried everything imaginable to fill the void you have in your life, and nothing has worked, and I have good news for you today. Jesus came and lived the life that you could not live, and he died the death that you and I both deserve to die. And through him, you can be at peace with God. You can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus does not invite you to add him to whatever you already have. He's not going to help you make your good works outweigh your bad. He replaces the old. He seeks to redeem you from the plague of sin. Person number one here today needs to return to the Lord. But person number two that this invitation is for is someone here today and you are burdened for someone who needs to return to the Lord. You know someone. You're married to someone. You're related to someone. You gave birth to someone who needs to return to the Lord. You understand that God's judgment is real. But as you sit here today, you think about your relationship with a parent or a spouse or a sibling. Many of you have a child or a grandchild that desperately needs to repent and return to the Lord. You've done what you could to raise them right, but they have chosen another path for their lives. I have good news for you today. No matter how far they've wandered away from you and from what you taught them and from what God's Word says, no matter how far they've gone, they are still only one step away from home. And when they return, they will find a Heavenly Father with arms wide open for them. Maybe today you need to come just at this moment between the porch and the altar and pray for someone who needs to return home. I want to extend the invitation to you as we pray. Father, I pray that you'd be with these closing thoughts of invitation. I pray that you'd be 
uh, just with hearts, Lord, people that know people that need to repent, they need to return. I pray that your people would come today and leave their burden here at the altar. They would leave it to you to do something in someone's life. God, I pray that we would return into a relationship with you, not just rend our garments, but God, our hearts, and that internal and lasting change would take place. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, all over the room. If you have a need and you'd like to come this morning, I would invite you to do that.